Smack dab in the middle of the Canadian prairies lies Saskatchewan. Inhabited by indigenous peoples for thousands of years, the area was first visited by Europeans in the 1690s. The first permanent European settlement in the area was in 1774 by, you guessed it, the Hudson's Bay Company. Interestingly, the southern part of what is now Saskatchewan was part of Spanish Louisiana and was transferred from France to the United States in the Louisiana Purchase. In 1818, the USA ceded the land to Britain. On September 1, 1905, Saskatchewan became Canada's ninth province. With its rectangular shape and fairly straight borders, it is by far the easiest province to draw. One of the things that makes Saskatchewan unique from the rest of Canada is it does not participate in daylight savings time. You know, that one glorious day of the year we get to sleep in for one extra hour, followed by that one horrible day of the year where you lose an hour. As a kid, I thought it was strange for them not to participate. As an adult, I realized that they're the only province to do it right. Also, who from Newfoundland remembers the horrors of double daylight savings time? That deserves a podcast all to itself. Saskatchewan is very passionate about football and their beloved Rough Riders. The team is by far the most popular team in the Canadian Football League and their merchandise outsells all other teams in the league combined. Their fans have a tradition where they wear watermelons on their heads as is the color similar to the green they wear on their helmets. Regina, the capital of the province, is home to the RCMP Training Academy, Depot Division, where Dudley Durites from all over the country go to become trained members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. In addition to all this, Saskatchewan is also home to some unique folklore, ghost stories, and general weirdness that we at the Some Weird Podcast seek out to bring to you, our loyal listeners. So sit back, put on your genuine Saskatchewan sealskin bindings, pay attention to the road if you're driving, or keep pushing while exercising, and get ready for stories about Saskatchewan, guaranteed to be some weird. Welcome to the Some Weird Podcast. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I am your co-host, Barry. And this here is the oft-delayed podcast. <laughs> well, we're a little bit behind. We're uh, still suffering the effects of double daylight savings time. Exactly. Do you remember that? Oh, I definitely remember that. I think it was only one year, double daylights, right? Yeah, they, they caught it up pretty quick, like, to realize this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Sun set at 11.30 at night. Right. It's like we're all up in Greenland or something. Exactly. <laughs> So Saskatchewan, what do, you, what do you know about Saskatchewan? I've never been there. I don't think you have either. I have not been to Saskatchewan. What I know about it is I've learned last week how to pronounce it. Hopefully that wasn't a rib by that listener. Right. Maybe she was just pulling our legs. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. The biggest thing that I remember about Saskatchewan growing up was from the TV show Bizarre. Yes. Anyway, whoever was with uh, Super, Super Dave would always say when they were strapping him in for the, for the stunt, they'd say, and his uh, safety straps were made with genuine Saskatchewan sealskin bindings. Obviously, the joke was it's a landlocked province. That's right. So a couple of famous people from Saskatchewan. You know that the greatest Canadian of all time, as voted by Canadians in a 2004 poll, was from Saskatchewan. You know who that was? I can't recall his name, but he's the universal health care guy. Yeah, Tommy Douglas. I would agree that's the greatest Canadian probably then. If I knock on wood, hopefully never had to do, but if I ever get a heart attack, I won't uh, go bankrupt. Tommy Douglas is the man to thank. And... Um, even though he's not from Saskatchewan, but he lives there, he, uh, Brock Lesnar. Do you know who Brock Lesnar is? No. Brock. You don't know Brock Lesnar. <laughs> is that supposed to make me know what it is? Is he a belch? Take me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he's a, he's a belch. Take a while. <laughs> guess what he does for a living or what he has done for a living in the past. Um, Is he an astronaut? He's an astronaut. Yeah, he's Canada's <laughs> first astronaut. And uh, he's from Saskatchewan. No, he is a professional wrestler. He's actually a UFC fighter as well. He was a former UFC champion. He is from Minnesota, but he, I guess he's a very reclusive, uh, very private individual. And he always worked on a farm in Minnesota and he, and he ended up buying a place in, in Maryfield, Saskatchewan. And that's where he lives to this day. It's a very strange profession he was seeking out if he was introverted. The showman in front of crowds making a big, yeah, it's, it's not for private individuals. For no. Part, right? All right. Is that our one wrestler, the Belchman? Brock Lesnar, yeah, that's our wrestler, and that's our famous man. There's there's others too, but I, I just went with those two. Cool. 
So we have Tommy Douglas, champion of universal health care, and a wrestler who sounds like a burp. Yeah. I mean, what else do you want? All right. So I have one big story for Saskatchewan, but I think we're going to start with yours this week. Yeah, before we get into that, we did have a listener who sent us uh, an email and they were talking about uh, in Regina, there's a ghost walk, you know, has all these different um, spooks and things like that. But one thing was that really caught my eye with the, with the email is that uh, they said they actually had a specific incident with it in Wiscana Lake or Wiscana Dock. And they said that their dog had a weird thing where the dog out of nowhere started barking and everything like that and wanted to jump off the, the, the wharf into the water. The listener's dog? The listener's dog, yeah. But it's very uncharacteristic of the dog, though. Oh. And uh, I mean, some of the places that's around there, there's one place called Willow Island Overlook on Wisconsin Lake. Uh, it's home of two ghosts. One man is said to have jumped off the overlook and drowned in the lake after getting stuck in the muck. And a rotting smell is said to still resonate from the spot. And an apparition of a little girl has also been seen sitting on the dock at the island. We've discussed this before. When a dog freaks out, there's yeah. usually something to it, right? For sure. Dogs, cats, animals, they know. They know. But yeah, no, if you're ever in Regina, like I said, there's a cool haunted walk. I suggest you, you Google it, check it out. It's, you know, I, I love that kind of stuff. But the story I do have is the story of Tom Sukunen. He's a, he was affectionately known as the Crazy Finn. <laughs> affectionately? Uh, maybe not affectionately, but he was, yeah. During the Great Depression, Tom owned a farm in Saskatchewan. And he, there was a year uh, with no decent crops. So, you know, in areas like the prairies, you do get a lot of droughts and, and, and things like that, right? Well, I mean, part of the depression was the Dust Bowl too, so exactly, which caused a lot of it, right? So right. Um, so again, you know, this year there was a drought. When rain did fall and wheat came up, insects quickly devoured it, mm-hmm. and the hot, dry wind blew day and night, carrying off the great black clouds of topsoil. Uh, people were resorting to packing up and moving out west, or worse, mm-hmm. deciding to toss a rope over a beam in the barn, which I guess is pretty depressing. So when everyone else was giving up on their on their land and giving up on the idea of farming in Saskatchewan, Tom had a much better idea. He decided he was going to build a boat so he could sail back from Finland. Now remember, Saskatchewan's in the middle of the prairies, pretty far, I think it's about a thousand kilometers away from any ocean. I mean, yeah, I mean, the closest thing would be Hudson's Bay, I guess. But the joke was that people thought he was building an ark for 40 days and nights of rain that was going to come once the drought ended. But uh, (laughs) the actuality was he was 26 kilometers from the nearest body of water and over a thousand from the closest ocean. (laughs) So... I mean, he did not do his research, obviously. Well, actually, we'll get into it. He actually kind of did. So we'll get into the story. Okay. He was born in a small village in Finland on September 23rd, 1878. Uh, and again, there's a couple different variations of the story on dates and what happened. Uh, the version I have, I think, is, is the most common from what I found in my research. So in 1906, he married uh, a girl by the name, and I, I'm going to butcher the, pr- the pronunciation, Sana Lisa, S-A-N-N-A, Sana, Lisa, L-I-I-S-A. But anyway, he married this girl, she got pregnant, and he, along with many other Finnish people, sailed to America in search for a better life. Family members thought that the reason he actually did come was not so much looking for a better life, but he was avoiding being drafted into the Russian army. Finland was controlled by Russia at the time. Yes. He sailed to America, and he settled in Minnesota and found work as an iron ore miner. A year later, him him and his daughter joined him in America. And again, that story kind of changes about when his wife and daughter and that came over, but uh, mm-hmm. just seems to be the most prevalent one. By 1910, they had four children, and he was involved in organizing a union of iron ore workers. Okay. One night, their house mysteriously burned down. The thought was, okay, people trying to bust the union or the union yeah. organizing or whatever, right? To try and get rid of them, right? Now, Tom's wife never responded well to him leaving in Finland and moved to America in the beginning. So she developed severe depression and was showing signs of dementia. Oh. And to make it worse, he wasn't a very supportive husband, and he actually spent three months in jail for negligence for not looking after his kids. Again, four children by 1910. It's coming out later, but we're recording this on Father's Day, so he probably gets their award for least best father, it sounds like so far. Yeah, for sure. So in March of of 1911, uh, his wife was forced to undergo an evaluation for a medical condition. Tom's reaction to this was he decided, reportedly on a whim, to walk to Saskatchewan to find his brother, Svante, S-V-A-N-T-E. Okay, sure. So he decided that he's got, the government was giving away free land or trying to encourage people to move to Saskatchewan, uh, start farming, out there, giving away free land, right? He made the 1,400-kilometer walk oh. before he made it to his brother. So he said, I'm going to walk. I, my wife's getting uh, committed to a psychiatric hospital. I'm like, I got four kids here, but you know what? I'm going to walk for gonna, 1,400 kilometers instead. I'm going to walk to Saskatchewan. So, I mean, it clearly wasn't running from the 
being in the Russian army for any medical reason. Like, obviously, he was no. in good shape to walk 1,400 no, he was, miles. he was in very good shape, and that'll come out a little bit later in the story. But uh, So he made it with 28 cents in his name, and reportedly his feet were a mess. <laughs> I was going to say, how many shoes did he go through? How long would it take, do you think? So if he walked a marathon a day, which is 40 kilometers, you're looking at over a month of walking a marathon a day to get to this place. So it probably took him a couple months to do it. That's insane. Yeah. His poor wife ended up in a psychiatric hospital in Minnesota. She was severely depressed and wouldn't open up or speak to anybody or anyone. The children were taken away and given up for adoption. Dad, a perfectly good dad, but like dads would just weren't responsible or held yeah. responsible back then. And it's weird to, like you said, we talked this before, like uh, the mother dies and the father just dumps the kid to stop someone else and goes off. Yeah. But going back to Tom, Tom was a bit of a mechanical genius. Uh, he ended up claiming a piece of land 16 miles from his brother when he finally made it. So I guess when you walk 1,400 kilometers, what's what's another 16 miles? Or, <laughs> right. Uh, he made a bunch of homemade machines for his farm. So he made a wooden steam-powered threshing machine. He made a sewing machine. He made a tricycle. He made a wheat puffing machine and a violin. <laughs> what did you do with the tricycle on the farm? <laughs> I don't know. He, I guess he was just a bit of genius. He's not making all these stuff up. And he, let, he used to give it to his neighbors, let his neighbors borrow these machines. Okay. And because of that, he became very popular, with, with I guess, in the community because he was obviously a good hand and he can make stuff with nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So he ended up becoming a very efficient farmer and he had harvests that were very uh, bountiful and he got, you know, uh, used his money, got a bunch of livestock and was very successful. So in 1918... He was making a very comfortable living, and he decided to go get his family. So again, this is seven years later. He said, eh, maybe I should go get my kids now. Uh, okay. So what did he do? He walked back to Minnesota. <laughs> Why didn't he get on his tricycle? <laughs> I think he could have run. He could have saved a bit of time, for sure. <laughs> it was here he found that his wife had died. Could have been either Spanish flu, but it could also have been before the flu hit. They're not really sure. Wait, nobody told him? Well, you just left her. I guess, but you couldn't track uh, someone's husband, a couple of states, and a province up when you're dead? No, I guess not. Oh, wow. All right. Well, what do anyway, I know? He found out that she is right. He did track down his son and actually convinced him to return to Canada with him. Oh, jeez. All right, you found his son. All right, you come back with me. Come live the high life on my farm here. <laughs> yeah, tricycles for all. Tricycles, violins. So they were caught at the border, and his son was returned to his adoptive parents, and he was threatened with jail time if he ever tried this again. So we got to pass this time. He said, all right, <laughs> we caught you. Don't do this every year, or we're going to put you in jail. But this time, it's okay. Just, just send them back. So Tom uh, walked back to Saskatchewan. It's another 1,400-kilometer trek. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he came with the realization that he was never going to be reunited with his family. So then he came up with this idea. So since he can't get his family back, he's going to triumphantly return to Finland on a boat that he handcrafted himself. We've already just... We've already just discovered that he can he's a good builder so uh he can build anything so he's going to build a boat now mm-hmm. so before he decided working on his project he wanted to see if it was feasible so in 1929 and he was 51 years old at this time okay he had a bunch of river maps he built a rowboat and left without telling anyone this this went on he set sail down the saskatchewan river he followed it up to grand rapids manitoba then cedar lake then lake winnipeg and entered the Nelson River and rode it to the Hudson's Bay. So you can get to the ocean. Apparently so, yeah. You can, yeah. So he did it. He's a lot smarter than I am. So from here, he secured a job on a freight steamer and got passage to Finland. So he made it back to Finland that way. Huh. So he returned to Saskatchewan. I don't know if he walked back from Finland or not, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. didn't say. So he began working on the vessel. So he ordered steel sheets, thick steel rods, nails, bolts, timbers, and began building a ship. Wait, sorry. Hang on. Back up three steps. Okay. Okay. Once he realized he was not going to be reunited with his family, he's like, I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to build a boat and sail to Finland. Yeah. (laughs) From Saskatchewan. From Saskatchewan. But then he booked passage on a freighter to Finland, and then he came back to build his boat? Yes. You already did it, man. Like, what are you coming back for? So I guess it was all about the journey, not really the, the destination for him. His thought was, I guess, that he could triumphantly sail in the boat that he made with his own hands. Okay. I just wanted to get it straight because yes. what? All right. You're, you're already there, man. Just, just stay there. You're good. Right? But what he actually did, he started to work. He went back to Saskatchewan, started building his vessel. He ordered steel sheets, thick, thick rods, nails, bolts, timbers, and began building his boat. Plan was to build a boat in parts, sail them down the rivers, and craft and assemble them in Hudson's Bay. So he sent down <laughs> different pieces. I'm getting some real Johnny Cash vibe here now. <laughs> One piece at a time. One piece at a time. So the tools that he used to construct his boat were a hacksaw, a homemade forge, an anvil, 
and two cut off sledgehammers. So he'd have two sledgehammers <laughs> in his hand, and he'd be like whacking it like this in order to uh, <laughs> to, to forge his like one of those drums, monkey drum things. Uh, yeah, right. The big stuff he snuck out of his buddy's mobile home. <laughs> uh, so he first built the, the steam boiler, and then the engine, and all parts forged by hand. Again, at first it was a hobby. He was only doing it like working on the ship when his farming duties would allow. But eventually he neglected his farm and worked full time on the ship. So his neighbors grew to resent him. And the reason being, this was all going on during the Great Depression. Uh, there was drought and windstorms ruining everyone's crops. Nobody had any money. This guy was blowing his savings and building a boat to sail to Finland and buying all this stuff and buying sheet metal and everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at desperate times, and here's Buddy, like, building a boat or some crazy-ass shit, yeah. <laughs> with, with sledgehammers. <laughs> so his health began to de deteriorate, and again, he began getting focused and absorbed by the project, and he started neglecting his physical appearance. It's kind of like the Howard, was it Howard Hughes? Or is that the yeah. Person? That's kind of what pitches me up. Tissue boxes on his feet and jars of yeah. piss in his house. He eventually ran out of money for raw materials, so he started tearing apart his barn and his house for lumber and began using that to build the ship. I don't know whether to, like, dislike him or idolize him. <laughs> yeah, I idolize his, his commitment to the job, anyway. Uh, yeah. So he began living on nothing but wheat and rotten horse meat. <laughs> Why did it have to be rotten? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess the, these horses were all dead because from neglect. Oh. He became very malnourished. And after seven years of labor, he nearly completed his ship. He actually nailed tin plates on it to protect it from the Arctic ice, I guess, for the journey. Uh-huh. He christened the boat... Santanian Finnish, uh, S-O-N-T-I-A-N-I-N-E-N. That's Finnish for Little Dung Beetle. No, it's not. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. Little <laughs> Dung Beetle was the name of his book. So, in 1938, he asked a neighbor who owned a tractor to help move his boat uh, 27 miles to the river. Yeah, he already had the cabins down there, but he had to move the main boat part over. Okay. Uh, I guess his neighbor thought he didn't want to get involved with him because people started to dislike him. They want to be seen help the crazy Finn guy who's sailing to Finland. So his neighbor wouldn't do it. So he said, all right, if you're not going to do it, fuck you. I'm going to do it myself. So he got his few horses that he had together, and uh, he started dragging this thing by himself. So the horses weren't that much help. So anyway, he put it on iron wheels, and he was dragging it by himself. Uh, <laughs> he made very little progress every day, and he's now a shell of his former self because he was malnutrition. He wasn't the strong man that he once was. Plus, he's almost 60 at this point. Exactly. So eventually his brother was worried about him and called the RCMP. Now his brother should have stepped in long before this. Yes. So they went to Tom and he was too weak to walk and they checked him into a psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. So apparently he moved about five kilometers before this happened. So that's how far he got and however long it and didn't say how long he was doing it himself before someone said, you know, get that man the help he needs. Even five kilometers dragging an iron boat is pretty amazing. Pretty good. One day in 1943, he learned that the ship that was, I guess, was this on the side of the road or whatever, ended up getting dismantled, disassembled, and looted by vandals, and all his tools were stolen. So mm. he took his sledgehammers and all that. Mm -hmm. And he died in the hospital shortly thereafter. Oh, okay. But while he was in the hospital, he wrote a letter to his sister. It was a bit of a, a, bit of a prophecy. This is what he said. Four times there will be men who will try to raise and assemble this ship. Three times they will fail, but a fourth man will succeed. He will start raising of my ship, and it will sail across the prairies at speeds unheard of to this day and age, and it will disappear in a muddy roar. My ship will go up, and I shall rest in peace. And he, that's what he wrote to his sister, that eventually someone's going to finish his life works, and he'll be able to rest in peace. Some of these things actually did come true. The first thing is, the great flood of Saskatchewan happened in 1943, shortly uh, after his death, which is part of these prophecy there. Yeah. Another one is one of Tom's friends, a farmer named Victor Marcula. Uh, M-A-R-K-U-K-K-U-L-A, Markula, purchased what was remained of the boat and stored it on his property. Uh, his son inherited it and promised to keep it for, until the right man came to put it back together. Over the years, three men approached him with the desire to buy the boat, but didn't. Two ran out of money, and a third gave up after a flood. The fourth man, Lawrence T. Mullen, heard the story and became obsessed with the story and wanted to spend the rest of his days restoring the ship and erect a monument dedicated to the man that started it. Wolf gave the man the ship, and it was restored and erected in a pioneer village and museum south of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. So true to Tom's prophecy, on the day he restored the ship, the, the, the dung beetle, it was loaded onto a flatbed truck and transported to its new home. The steamboat ripped down the highway at speeds largely unheard of in the 30s and disappeared into the mighty roar of the truck's diesel legend. And as the final part of this story, Tom Suniman's body was exhumed and put into a small chapel right next to his ship. Huh where it is there on display. Man, what was in his head? 
What was all going on the whole time in his head? I don't know. It's, it's a very strange story. Like I came across as looking for something else. I can't yeah. remember what it was. And I was like, man, this this is one of the most interesting stories I ever came across. So That is a very bizarre story. And there's multiple stories about people who march into their own drummer, but they're very, very smart in a certain way. And a lot of times that's in mechanically inclined. So like this guy who built yeah. this ship, it seemed like he didn't really want to go back to Finland. He just wanted to... He wanted the legend of saying that he did it, is what it seems like. Yes, because he already went there. That's why I was like, hang on, just back up a little bit. Almost like he had a straight line vision in his head that nobody else could see for you know for it. Yep. And that's what was going to happen. And then when he wasn't able to complete it, he still knew what was going to happen to that creation. It's very yep. strange. Very strange. Yep. It's almost like they see a different reality. If you can build a ship with two sledgehammers, a hacksaw, and, and whatever else you had, I mean, that, that's a talent. That's what that is. I don't even know how to pump gas. <laughs> and it's illegal for you to do so, so. Yes, it is illegal to pump your own gas in New Jersey. That's probably the main reason why I live here. Anyway, uh, that was a very cool story. I like that a lot. Happy I came across it. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Uh, shall I get into my story? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's get into it. So before I start my story, I just want to put out a, a trigger warning. The story is not explicit in any way, except for, of course, there'll be some F-bombs because, you know, Barry can't control himself. But <laughs> but uh, there is discussion of child abuse. It's not explicit. And I tried to only say what was necessary for the story to kind of move along, but just let you know that if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, there is mention of child abuse in this story. Okay, so my story is about what happened in a small Saskatchewan town in 1992. So it's a pretty recent story. Okay. And it all comes around that thing that happened in the 80s and 90s that we call satanic panic. You familiar with that term? Yeah, it's part of that. That's when I guess all these... Everyone thought there was a satanic cult coming up everywhere and rock and roll was devil's music. All these cults came up out of nowhere, right? Not all these cults, but there's, there's several cults, yeah. Or none at all, but people thought they were yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Let me get into the story and I'll tell you why apparently I'm a devil worshiper. So what is the devil anyway? Like what is your image of the devil? My image of the devil? It's what everyone is. is it's the New Jersey devil. <laughs> yeah, but what what's your image of it? Mine is, is the, the red guy with the horns and the pitchfork and, mm -hmm. and lives below us, apparently, for some, some strange reason. The Halloween devil, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the Christian image of Satan is the, usually it's um, the fallen angel Lucifer. He became the devil himself. Mm -hmm. So this is like a pure evil juxtaposed to the pure good of God. And if you're a Christian, Jesus. But uh, speaking from the context of Christian religions, Satan provided the necessary icon for what not to do for thousands of years. So a lot of Christians feared that the thing, the entity, the devil was lurking in the shadows in some form or another to tempt you and turn you from good. Mm -hmm. For example, to turn you from the church. So some say that the church kind of would have been out of business if it wasn't for the devil. Because if you don't have your enemy, then why are you binding together? But, you know, I don't fault people for their religious beliefs. It's what they want to do. No, for sure. No. Without something to fear, what brings people together and something like that? It's, that's a good point. The idea of having something to be against is just as binding as the idea of something that puts you together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. It's kind of what uh, what that's all about. So if you fast forward like a whole bunch of years to the 1960s in America, you have this rise of a bunch of 60s countercultures. And that's plural. There's all kinds of them. So this was when it seems like an overwhelming amount of youths or youths were... Uh, skeets? <laughs> no, not skeets. Actually, before we continue, what's a skeet? Because I think that's a Newfoundland term. I don't know if there's an actual definition of a skeet, but... If you look at someone and say, that, that person's going to rob this store, rob all the cigarettes. If you've ever watched the Kevin Smith movie Clerks, Jay and Silent Bob are skeets. Yeah, that's, that's a good definition. So in the 60s, there was a bunch of countercultures. So there seemed to be a lot of youth that were turning to the ideals of Eastern religions, kind of not really turning away from the Christian America or whatever. But, you know, they were looking for like other alternative paths to God kind of a thing. And then you had the hippie movement of peace and love. 
that's what I associate the 60s with, you know, is, is the hippie movement, Woodstock, all that. Exactly, yes. Um, and there's also a rise in cults, though cults were not a new thing, but there seemed to be a lot of cults coming up in the 60s. And then you had people like Charlie Manson, who were offering a different sort of philosophy. In his case, he was kind of pure evil to a lot of these people that looked at themselves as lost souls. They're looking for their path, their way, not their parents' way. In the midst of all of this going on in the 1960s, an ex-carney named Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible, and he founded the Church of Satan in San Francisco. Ever hear of this character? No. Was the Satanic Bible like, you know, Lucifer 316 and all this kind of stuff? No. Yes. Oh, it was. Okay. It's basically a spoof on the Bible. <laughs> Reading from the book of Damien. Exactly. So the Satanic Bible and the Church of Satan sounded very, very bad to the waspy establishment. LeVay himself is a real character. He lives in a full black house. He's got a full shaved head, like totally bald. He's got the prototypical goatee, like the devil looking goatee. He wears a pentagram necklace. He walks a pet lion around on a leash. Like he's a seriously extravagant guy. But he's a showman. That's what all this is about. If you look at the Church of Satan beyond its deliberate name, you see that it's not even a church at all. He's more like sticking it to the establishment. But the establishment see him as you're the antichrist and pure evil. Um, The Church of Satan itself, it doesn't even believe in Satan or God or any dogma at all. The group itself is really all about individualism and doing what makes you happy as long as it doesn't negatively affect anyone else. Okay. In a bizarre twist, the message of the Church of Satan is actually probably closer than the message of Jesus Christ, love thy neighbor as you would love yourself, than the message that's projected by the actions of like fundamentalist Christian church leaders. Mm-hmm, for sure. It doesn't matter because the important thing was, holy shit, devil worship. Yeah, Satan's in there. That, that just, the red flags go up, right? Pun intended. That's right. The red devil horn flag is going up. So in the late 1960s and the early to mid 1970s, there was some serious cash to be made with the whole good versus evil thing. Take, for example, pop culture, one of our favorite topics of all time. Yep. You look at some books that were coming out around that time and subsequent movies, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, you know, these books Mm -hmm. and movies both caused a great big uproar, especially The Exorcist. It almost created its own personal panic because, first of all, it was supposed to be based on a true story. I heard it was based on a true story, yeah. I mean, based on is, you got artistic license with the based on part. And there was a lot of really bizarre things that happened in the filming of The Exorcist. A lot of people said creating the movie itself was a cursed thing to do because there were so many weird things that were going on. For example, one of the actors who had a bit part, have you seen The Exorcist before, by the way? I did. Uh, it's quite a while ago. I saw it a long time ago. I saw it when it was re-released in the theater. And a couple of years ago, when we went down to D.C. for Easter, I made it a point to take my family to the Exorcist Steps in Georgetown. Uh, but there's an actor with a, he had a small part. At the beginning, they take the girl to like medical doctors to see like what's going on with her, why she's spitting up pea soup and her head is spinning around. So she gets all these tests. And the guy who played the technician, he was actually a serial killer. In real life, like they found out, yes, they found out later he was a a serial killer. But a lot of the audience goers, when they watched it, they reported feeling very sick. They were probably like clutching their pearls and like, oh, my stars. But, you know, they, a lot of people said they got sick watching The Exorcist, probably because of the barf part. Yeah. The probably the most like grandiose and symbolic thing that happened was at one screening in Rome of all places, a sudden thunderstorm happened and kind of gathered around like the theater where it was uh, showing and lightning struck this 400 year old cross at the Vatican while the exorcist was showing there. Really? Yeah. You couldn't pay for that publicity, right? Like that was like the movie makers must have been like, yes. This is gold. Right. People were making money off this whole like satanic, not, at this point it's not satanic panic, but this Church of Satan and now people are really into it and against it and I can make money from this. So they, you know, write these books and make these movies. Um, another thing was the role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that had a lot of scrutiny. It was promoting devil worship and especially after there was a 1979 suicide of this computer science prodigy and he was said to be an avid D&D player. But uh, there's more evidence to suggest that 
his suicide had a lot more to do with his depression and his struggle over his own hidden homosexuality. Oh, that's too bad. Everybody blamed the board game. Everyone blamed D&D, yeah. Yeah, he's the level three elf. I'm a level three cleric. Are you really? Yep. That's a good segue, actually, Barry. So to recap, I think I'm a Satanist (laughs) (laughs) because I think I should pursue your own happiness. Like, do what you think is right. Don't hurt anybody else, but do, do what makes you happy. And then I think I am, or I hope that I am, accepting of other people, regardless of their race and religion and gender identity and all that kind of stuff. Um, yep. I've read Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, <laughs> and I've watched <laughs> the movies. And uh, I also read The Omen. You mentioned Damien earlier. I yeah. throw that at one in there for good measure. And I play d and I'm a level three cleric, so. You pretty much do it all, yeah. Pretty much I'm a devil worshiper. By the 1980s, you start to come into this full-blown satanic panic. This really started in Canada, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. You hear a lot of like down in the States stories, you know, but it really kind of bloomed out of this one book that came out of Canada. In 1980, there was a book called Michelle Remembers. It was written by Michelle Smith and Dr. Lawrence Pazder. The book was insane and was also insanely popular. And it quickly, very, very quickly became a bestseller. People could not get enough of this book. I've never read it or heard about it before this. Let's give a little spoiler alert here of what it's all about. It's marketed as a true account, much like The Exorcist. And it's written based on about 600 hours of Michelle's sessions with her psychiatrist, Lawrence Pastor, the co-author of the book, where she has a bunch of recovered memories from her childhood. So the gist is this. She was sold to a satanic cult by her mother when she was five. And over the course of several months, the cult forces her to drink piss, eat human flesh, bathe in the blood of murdered babies, participate in murders, live in a cage full of snakes and spiders. You know, normal satanic worship cult stuff, right? She also has a Halloween style devil horns surgically grafted onto her head and a tail surgically grafted onto her butt. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. This is true? Again, it's based on the true story, based on the recovered memories of this woman. Uh, so how does she escape, right? She's Obviously, she's writing this book and telling the psychiatrist all this kind of shit, right? So how does she escape? So an intervention from the physical form of the Virgin Mary herself swoops in and saves the young Michelle. I don't know if Mary returns Michelle to the mother that gave her away in the first place. I'm not sure what happens there. But the book is debunked many, many times, at least in part because there's absolutely no record of Michelle being absent from school. And probably even bigger than that, she doesn't have horns or a tail. (laughs) And she has- that was my first thing, yeah. She doesn't have any scars or any like indication that anything happened at all. Once the book comes out, the people believe it, right? They believe Mm -hmm. in all these recovered memories. And then there's this shit storm of people thinking that there's satanic cults just lurking everywhere. And then you may have heard of the term ritualistic abuse or ritualistic satanic abuse. That was coined by Pastor in this book. That term was used again and again and again in cases throughout both Canada and the United States. Okay. So that's kind of the background of where satanic panic came from. So now that we know that Satanists are laying in wait at all turns of your life, (laughs) uh, (laughs) many popular toys, cartoons, and big corporations are accused of supporting Satanism throughout the 1980s. Here's a couple of them. McDonald's. A rumor started that Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, on the Phil Donahue show, admitted to financially supporting the Church of Satan. So this was spread among certain fundamentalist Christian churches. I don't know what he said, how it was misconstrued or anything like that, but the McDonald's Corporation ended up spending a lot of money to dampen that down or... Debunk it. Debunk it. Yes, exactly. Thank you. And then Phil Donahue... And all the talk shows of the 80s, they loved this Satan stuff. Oh, yeah. Procter & Gamble, big corporation, their logo was changed after 100 years because the original logo had 13 stars on it. And people said, 13 stars? That's a devil sign. People just made up devil signs all over the place. Yeah. The 13 stars were actually representative of the original 13 colonies of the United States. Didn't matter. People believed that it was devil worship, so they had to change it. Here's one from your childhood. He-Man. He-Man. Play with He-Man, you're a Satanist. There's no doubt about it. Can you take a stab at why He-Man was the devil? From the 
His, what was what was his cat's name? It wasn't a cat. It's so ridiculous you can't even think of it. Don't let your children play with He-Man. That's the devil. Because the only master of the universe could be God. Oh, Jesus. His enemy was a big skeleton face, so I guess that's probably... Skeletor! <laughs> he was a skull, and he lived in a skull. The Smurfs? The Smurfs. They were bad because they were blue. You could see a blue creature as the undead. So raising the dead. Who came up with this shit? Fucking nutballs. So, I mean, you went to Catholic school, so did I. One story I do remember is you know, Jesus rises. Is it Lazarus from the dead? Or was that the guy he made not blind? I don't know. He rose some asshole from the dead. That was good. That's well, fine. Some piece of shit. No. <laughs> some guy, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the Smurfs, you know, a bunch of zombies running around. That's the, this is like the church lady. Tree apples high. <laughs> Old Gargamel going to eat him. That show was madness, but... Uh, the whole the whole premise of the show was Gargamel wanted to get the Smurfs so he could eat him. I know. <laughs> anyway. uh, and he wore that dress with one patch on it. Yeah. The Moo Yeah, so the Smurfs were bad because they were blue. Uh, Rainbow Bright? Is that the board with the lights? No, that's Light Bright. Rainbow Bright okay. was a doll with yarn hair. She had a star on her cheek. That was one of her things. But the people who were like, Satan is everywhere, said, that's not a star, it's actually a pentagram. And so Rainbow Bright was for devil worshippers, too. Okay. All right. Something that you might remind her was uh, something called back masking. This is when if you play a song backwards, you can hear satanic oh, messages. Oh, yes, I do. Yeah, that was a big one. The heavy metal group Judas Priest, they were actually sued for the tragic suicide and attempted suicide of two teenagers who were their fans. Nobody wants to look at the overall mental health of people. They just yeah. go, you listen to Judas Priest. That's a devil thing and the devil made you do it, you know. Another thing coming, so that's it. <laughs> right. Seriously, everything was the devil. There was even a case of satanic panic in our hometown of Bay Roberts, if you remember. Back in the late 1980s, I'm going to say, there was rumors that a guy who lived down in the east end of Bay Roberts was going to sacrifice one boy and one girl on Halloween, and he even had the graves dug down where the heritage trail is in, in yeah. the east end of Bay Roberts today. So I will not say his name because clearly he wasn't a devil worshiper who was going to murder some yeah. children. But anyway. You know, he had his own origin story and everything. So he was a genius when he was in high school. But then he got into drugs and that eventually led him to worshiping the devil. And there was even a little jingle that went with it. It was, Satan lives in Mad Rock. His name is blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I don't remember the jingle. I do remember the story. Yeah, that was sung on the uh, on the bus coming home from school. I personally wow. remember being afraid. Oh, yeah. No, everyone was. Yeah, I was going to be the girl that he picked to murder. Yeah. And, uh, but that short-lived satanic panic was quickly over and kind of largely forgotten. But Bay Roberts, very small town. Yep, spreads quick. It does. Um, and it reached everywhere. That's my point. Like, even Bay Roberts yep. had its own satanic panic. You know, ours blew over and was largely forgotten. But that wasn't the case for the small town of Martinsville, Saskatchewan, when satanic panic led to what became known as the Martinsville Nightmare. The main source of this story came from the Season 6 CBC podcast, Uncover. Um, I also listened to a couple of episodes of my new very favorite podcast called American Hysteria for some information about satanic panic and stranger danger. Everything rhymed in the 80s. Like, it's shit you had to be afraid of, it had to rhyme. Yeah. yeah. All right. In 1992, again, not that long ago, that's the year I graduated from high school, um, in a small town called Martinsville, Saskatchewan, it's about eight kilometers north of Saskatoon, one of Saskatchewan's uh, bigger cities. Satanic panic swept through the town and terrified a lot of the residents. This is a very small town. Like many cases of mass hysteria, this one started with something very small. And like other cases of satanic panic, this one started in a daycare. So daycares were often the center of cases where people were accused of ritualistic abuse. Again, that's that term that that Lawrence Pazder guy coined in that Michelle Remembers book. A lot of conservatives did not like the idea of women working out of the house. The 1980s shows a giant influx of women in the workplace. Dolly Parton, nine to five. Exactly. Power suits, big old shoulder pads, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Uh, women no longer wanting to or being expected to stay at home and be financially dependent yep. on a man. It's all the rage in the 80s. 
This upsets the balance for a lot of conservatives, and, and there's a backlash. Conservatives don't want women in the workforce, or back then they did? Um, if you're really far right, they do not. The woman yeah. does the woman's work. You raise your children, you listen to your husband, you know, that kind of stuff. To me, personally, I think if that's the life you choose and want to lead, then you should be able to happily pursue that. Absolutely. But I think that if somebody else wants to choose and pursue a different kind of a lifestyle, then they should also be happy to pursue that as well. Why the fuck do you care what somebody else wants to do with their life? Yeah, it's none of my business. Yeah. If that's your way, then that's okay. But it's not everybody's way, and I think we're going in a better way today. Oh, 100% we are. But anyway, when women and men are both in the workforce and they have children... There's this growing demand for daycare, right? Someone, they got to be yeah. somewhere. So a lot of assholes think that the women who send, not the men, the women who send their children to the daycare are letting strangers raise their kids. So I don't know what they think when the kids start school at the age of five. Yeah, that's right. But daycares are bad. That's the idea. Uh, and this idea of stranger danger is really heavily pushed. Even the Fonz himself was the honker. <laughs> And all of that. <laughs> so while it is true that children are abducted and they are abused by strangers, they're overwhelmingly more likely to be abused by someone they know. But if you look back on the 1980s, it kind of would have been weirder if daycares weren't involved in some kind of a satanic panic because they were so central to the conservative way of life or that nuclear family way of life was disintegrating. Yeah. So by the time the 1990s roll around, there's entire seminars led by and attended by psychologists, police, social workers, these kind of like community leaders to investigate suspected devil worship cults as a real thing. Really? The Satan Seminar? Yes. Martinsville residents Ron and Linda Sterling run a daycare out of their home. One day after a long day of work, a local mother picks up her two and a half year old daughter from the Sterling daycare. You know, a lot of the kids in the community went there. And uh, Martinsville is, like I yep. said, it's eight kilometers outside of Saskatoon. It's kind of a commuter town. So a lot of working yep. families live there. They go to Saskatoon to work. And this couple is running kind this like day. Portugal Cove. Is Portugal Cove like that for St. John's? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So this mom, you know, she's after a long day of work. She picks up her kid who's two and a half years old. So she's changing her diaper and she notices that the daughter has a bad diaper rash. I've had three babies myself. <laughs> I've seen a yeah. lot of diaper rash. Some of it yeah. is worse than others. And you, you have a, a kid as well. I'm sure that you've seen some I've seen nasty yep. diaper rash, right? Uh, sometimes it's alarming. Probably back in those days, they didn't have the same kind of awesome diaper cream that, that I had when my kids were babies because yeah. it kind of cleared it up in one day. Weird stuff. Bam. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Pseudo cream. Shout out. <laughs> Lysol? No. Yeah, that's right. Don't put Lysol on your baby's arses. Uh, yep. But they, they probably didn't have it back then. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe the mom also felt kind of some extra societal guilt that accompanies yep. all working moms and probably a lot of working dads as well, whose babies do go to daycare. So in any case, she asks her, again, two and a half year old about the redness on her bum. They go back and forth. I don't know the language that, uh, you know, that they're using. I say she said, what's that rash on your hole? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how the conversation went, but they, they go back and forth. And in the end, this is the story that the mom gets from the two and a half year old child. I was poked in the bum by a stranger who lived at the daycare. Oh, jeez. With a pink rope. Well, let that sit for one sec. Okay. That's a fucking horrendous thing to hear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even if sure. Even if you're going back and forth and getting that information kind of eventually... That's a sickening thing to hear. Yep. Okay. And I want to stress this through this whole story. I don't want to blame people for going crazy, right? In the end, at that time, that mom was faced with the possibility that her child was either sexually or physically abused at the very place that she chosen to send her child to for care. To leave her kid, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of guilt. Yep. So the parents of this child, they could have gone in a lot of different ways with that information. They could have gone a time to kill style. Yep. And a lot of parents would have fully understood that action, but they didn't. They were very sensible and they went to the, the two rational places to go. 
first the police to report that they had reason to believe something was going on at this daycare. And the second place was the pediatrician so that he could examine their daughter. The doctor found no signs of abuse. And in his opinion, he said it's a Mm -hmm. particularly nasty case of diaper rash. But still that pink rope image. It's not something you go, okay, it's just a diaper rash. I mean, you can never get that description right out of your head, I don't think. Let's go to what the police did with this. Officer Claudia Bryden, she's new to the Martinsville police force at this time. So the case comes before her and rightfully she starts an investigation, right? She's not going to be like, oh, that's foolishness. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, diaper rash. She has to look into that. You can't bring up such a complaint and then nobody look at it. So in the course of her investigation... She comes across this, it's almost an impossible little piece of paper sort of in the back, hidden away in a file in the station, you know, like you'd never know it was there unless you were looking for it. And on that is a file that indicated that the son of the Sterlings, who was running the daycare, was accused of sexual abuse of a minor back in 1988. The complaint was never investigated. And to Officer Bryden, and probably any rational person, right, at this part, she's very suspicious. Yeah. So she decides to dig deeper into it. Again, at this point in the story, I'm with you on it. You got to look into this. <laughs> yeah, I can't see how anybody would question that. I mean, there's, a, there's past history. There's enough there for her to go, okay, but maybe there is something more to it. That's yes, right. It's worth a look. Exactly. So in the interest of the child, right, she looks into it a bit more. In the course of the whole investigation, the children who were attending the daycare at the time, they're all interviewed by a psychologist. And then the whole thing goes from a serious investigation of sexual abuse or possible sexual abuse to a full-blown mass hysteria that there was a secret cult of Satan worshipers in the quiet town of Martinsville and no one's children are safe. So it went from zero to 60. How did it jump to that? It's a very good question. So like I said, by the 1990s, there was a bunch of experts on the field of ritualistic satanic abuse, largely because of that Michelle Remembers book. And the Satanist thing was both sensationalized in the talk shows of the 80s and 90s, but then it's also mainstream. So the community protectors are learning what to do in case of a cult. The sad thing is that child abuse really is real and cults are also real. So it's not really that difficult to believe that you could make the next step to like, maybe there's cult to abuse children, you know? And I think that's why it's easier for people to buy. Back to the investigation, you said, like, how did it get from zero to 60? The children are interviewed by the psychologist and a story begins to evolve based on these interviews. And the story is that Ron and Linda Sterling and their son, the guy that was accused back in 1988, they're all accused of abusing the children. But that's not all. The children also say there's even more people involved in the abuse. And this leads to more panic. Parents think, you know, we've left our children at the daycare with these monsters, but there's others in the community. How old are you when you're in daycare? Three-year-old kids. Probably five years old and under. They're interviewed over and over and over again. And the more they're interviewed, the wilder their stories get. They start talking about being taken to a blue building called the Devil's Church and being injected with drugs, watching people getting killed and dismembered. They tell graphic stories about being abused that I am not going to retell here. It's, let's just say like the worst thing that you can imagine, that's what was happening. Five, the the kids were telling their psychologist on, on the fifth interview. Exactly. Yes. Thank you for picking up on that. The details don't just open-endedly come from the kids. It's not like they sit down the first time and say, tell me what happened. We went to the devil's church and we killed some babies and we drank their blood. You know, it wasn't like that. Even though the interviewer would swear that they were not leading the children in any way. Yeah. When they go back and read the transcripts and watch the tapes, they see that they were asking a bunch of leading questions. Yeah. And not only that, every single time they told something bad that happened, they were praised. Oh, Even worse than that, the more they said, the worse it was. They were being praised and they were given prizes. So they would be like, if you tell me this, you'll get a coloring book or you'll get to meet the police dog. That was another one that they used on them. So the kids were like, oh, yeah, all kinds of shit was going on. Let me see that dog now. Right. Drinking blood. Let me go play fetch. It was so crazy. And they weren't asking questions like, 
do you like daycare? Which is not a leading question. It was more like, well, we know that such and such is happening because this other kid told us. So why don't you tell us what happened? Yeah. Like that. You know what I mean? So it should be noted, though, that in the early, like the first interviews, none of the children said anything was happening. It was just, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, I go to school. It's fine. But on the fifth time, you know, they were drinking blood. Yeah. The children start to say there's an entire group of adults involved in the cult. And they say that some of them are police officers. This creates more panic because if the police are involved in the cult, how can anyone be trusted to investigate the cult? So the next round are saying, yeah, you're interviewing me. You're involved. (laughs) (laughs) It's so bizarre. And now the parents, they don't know what to think or what to trust. And, you know, at this point in the story, I just I want to back it up to the very beginning where the kid had a diaper rash and the mom was like, it doesn't look normal. And now we're at the point where. The daycare workers, other adults, including the police, are all involved in a satanic cult, which is making our children drink blood. Killing people. They're watching. Where are all the people coming from? Yeah, yes. Where are all these, these missing people? Exactly. So they don't know who to trust. So the town of Martinsville hires a new police chief. But this guy is no help at all. One time, he gets wind from a local pastor who says that he has it on good authority that a literal busload of Satanists are definitely coming to Martinsville on a certain date, and their goal is to abduct the children. Once the chief hears this story, the pastor tells, gots to be true, he authorized his team to use deadly force and even use their own personal firearms to fight the Satan war. This guy's Chief Wiggum. That's right. You got the pastor, you got the chief of police, and they're ready to throw down what a gang of Satan is. Everyone's going mad. People are terrified. Invokes the War Measures Act. Someone probably should have invoked the War Measures Act on this crowd at this point. Uh, And by the way, there was no busload of Satanists that came. Nobody showed up. It's easy for us to look back at it and go, those guys were dumb because we weren't living it, right? I thought I was going to be buried in Mad Rock, so. (laughs) You look back to one year ago and what everyone thought was going to happen with COVID, right? I mean, same type of thing. Another good example is Y2K. Planes are falling out of the ground, yeah. Yeah. Although every time I hear like, Y2K was supposed to be everything, then it was nothing. It makes me want to always add to that because people fix the bug. That's right, yeah. Right? In addition to the three original accused, the daycare workers and their son, who was an adult, six additional people are charged with child abuse. By this time, the satanic cult has an official name. It's now called the Brotherhood of the Ram. Oh, God. So the police are scouring the surrounding area looking for this blue devil's church where the Brotherhood of the Ram meet to sacrifice whatever. So wild. Do you think they ever found this devil's church? I'm going to say no. Well, they did. Yes, they did find the devil's church. Police officers say that they found it on the outskirts of town. It's this big blue outbuilding, and in it they find all the accoutrements, of a devil-worshipping satanic sacrifice cult. An axe, a freezer for storing your blood for later, (laughs) and the most damning evidence of all, a bunch of sheep skulls around. It's got all the fixings for a cult. Not everybody thinks there's a cult. You know, it's not torches in the streets or whatever, but there's a good amount of people. Like, I just, I want to interject that in here too. Like, everyone doesn't lose their damn minds, but a lot of people are. Around the town, signs start popping up that say, we believe the children. That's kind of the slogan of this Martinsville nightmare. Yeah. That and children don't lie. Those were the kind of the two things that uh, many adults were saying. Ironically, though, those who thought that there was a satanic cult in town did not believe the children when they were initially interviewed. They only believed them when they started saying there's a cult. Okay, yeah. An investigative task force is formed to figure out what the hell's going on in Martinsville. They find no physical evidence to support any of the outrageous stories of abuse, murder, even when they see aside the so-called Devil's Church. They didn't find anything. As a result of that task force, nobody else is arrested. But even though this task force finds no corroborating physical evidence, the Crown decides they're still going to proceed with their cases. It just blows my mind. Like My son's in daycare, and I'm sure if he was taken to a blue building every day to watch drink blood i'm sure at some point he'd mention that to me it might come out in his drawings or something yeah that's right yeah so anyway that's just you say we believe the children but yeah it just doesn't make any sense it's pretty crazy 
The first trial is that of a female young offender. Her name is protected under the Young Offenders Act. So she's tried and convicted of seven of the 10 charges against her. The only evidence in her trial was the testimony of two children. She gets two years. That's her sentence. Trial number two is one of the police officers that was accused. This is a police officer by the name of John Popovich. He's from Saskatoon. He had only been to Martinsville once in his entire life when he stopped to get gas and a tin of drink and a bag of chips, or in his words, a pop and a bag of chips. Sorry, tin to drink. <laughs> but he'd only been there once. Suspicion is cast upon him because he shows interest in the case. What's going on down in Martinsville? Yeah. <laughs> Something's crazy, you know. Plus, he's a cop. Of course, he's yeah. interested in what's going on. So his photo is put into like a photo array. Yeah. The kids pointed at it out or something. Yes, exactly. And one of the kids says, that's the guy. He's ostracized from the community, right? His family is harassed, including his 12-year-old daughter, who's beaten so badly by other children at school that she has to be hospitalized. Man. In his interrogation, he even starts to wonder to himself, did I black out and do things that I don't remember? Like he starts to question his own, what he did. That's pretty good interrogation tactics, I guess. That's right, yeah. Convince somebody to do something he didn't do. I'm assuming he didn't do. Spoiler alert, he didn't. At his trial, there's no evidence at all except for that kid who picks out the photo array. That was the only thing that was against him. I don't even know how the Crown could go forward with this trial, to be honest with you. A lot of people, though, thought like, well, he's a cop, so he knows how to cover up all these crimes. Yeah. It's like you can't fucking win, right? No, that's right. And that was part of the Crown's case against him, too. Not only did the kid point him out, but well, he knows how to get rid of some stuff. He's a cop. Some of the children testify at the trial. They're completely physically covered. You, you can't yeah. see your accuser, which I think, again, stuff like this happens. And that's a very good thing to not have to look at, yeah. uh, you know, the person who did something that bad to you. And so they're not intimidated. So at the trial, Popovich's lawyer shows the three children who testified a live lineup. So it's... Popovich and a bunch of other people in a live lineup. None of them picked Popovich. Oh, wow. One of the kids said, I chose that guy, whoever he pointed to, because I liked his tie. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. Like, this guy's life was ruined. Ruined because of a, a bullshit accusation. And that's the thing, too. Like, being accused of something like this is just, well, being saying you're guilty, right? Exactly. Being accused is, is front page news. Being exonerated is back of the paper news, right? Yeah, because the kids were not able to pick him out in the live lineup and also said, I like that guy's tie. That's why I picked him. He's found not guilty. And to his credit, once he's cleared, he goes right back to his job. He's like, listen, the oath I took is protect and serve. Yeah. It was the job of my colleagues to interrogate me. They didn't yeah. know. Right? They had to question me. And I would have done the same thing. And I'm a cop yeah. and I'm going back to work. So he's probably a bigger man than most, I would say. Now we come to the trial of the daycare workers. Ron and Linda Sterling and their son, Travis, they're all tried together. They're all co-defendants together. The same evidence is presented against all three of them, but only Travis is found guilty. So if the same evidence proved the guilt of one, it should have proved the guilt of all. Yeah. Right? But it's not. What was the rationale for that? Well, in retrospect, a lot of people think that Travis was probably found guilty so that the Crown and the people could save face. Save face, yeah. Uh, yeah, there really wasn't anything going on. That's pretty fucked up. But uh, you're guilty because we don't want to look stupid. Your life is fucked because we're so stupid. It's really, really bizarre. But we'll talk a little bit more about Travis later. After their trial, that task force, it returns and they have its uh, like a town hall to discuss what's going on. Here, they have a bunch of experts on satanic ritualistic abuse and they speak to the already panicked town about what's going on the task force is asked if all these babies and people are being sacrificed why is there no reported missing people why is there no physical evidence where's all the dead bodies yeah where's all the dead bodies or where's the missing people and the typical line of reasoning from the experts is that and brace yourself for this there's underground human trafficking and no bodies are ever found because Satanists eat their victims. There you go. I mean, Makes sense. there's no rationality here. As for the physical evidence, they say exactly what they tried to pull at the John Popovich's story, which is law enforcement and like other high ranking public officials 
they know how to cover that up. It's insane. Yep. So like a bunch of Avengers, uh, the task force comes and they go, listen, we're going to review everything from the beginning till now. They discover tons of issues with how everything is handled, not the least of which was the methods used to question the children. The transcripts and the recordings show that the children were asked leading questions and rewarded for telling on the perceived bad guys. Yeah. They uncover problems with a book called The Secret of the Silver Horse. This is a book that was issued by the government and geared towards children in abuse cases to encourage them to speak out. But they question, does this book encourage them to tell a horrible story to catch a bad guy or does it instruct them on how to tell a horrible story? Yeah. When they look at it through unbiased eyes, the transcripts of the children's uh, interviews reveal that, again, not one child accused anybody of doing anything until it was suggested to them that something happened. So the one person that was found guilty got two years. Were they actually guilty? This is what happened next. After the task force says, boss, you fucked this yeah. one up big time, right? Yeah. Travis Sterling was found guilty. Uh, the trials for the rest of the people that were kind of waiting for on trial, they were stayed. So that doesn't mean that the charges are dropped, but they're not going to pursue anything, which is yeah. kind of just as bad. Like I'd rather them just say, you're not guilty, yeah. or, you know, our yeah. charges are dropped. Both the young offender and Travis Sterling appeal their cases. Eventually, judges rule that the children's testimonies were tainted and led. All but two of the charges are overturned. And these were the charges involving the two and a half year old girl that sparked the whole thing in 1992 and the original accusation from 1988 that Officer Bryden found tucked away and never investigated before this new situation shed light on it. But in the end, better investigative techniques and interview skills are developed when it comes to cases involving young children. So something good does come out of this. And the thing to remember was that even though there was no satanic cult running a daycare in Martinsville, Children are subjected to terrible things, and those guilty people do need to be brought to justice. So a lot of bad came out of this case, like neighbors turning on each other, mistrust of the police, unimaginable feeling of guilt and worry from the parents, tarnished reputations. All that was very, very bad, but at least something good came out of it, if nothing else. And then finally, what about the very weirdly specific Brotherhood of the Ram? The fuck, yeah, it's a very right? interesting name. It was just fabricated. Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, the so-called Devil's Church was this big blue outbuilding on the outskirts yep. of town. It turns out it was owned by a man named Alan Bischoff. At the time of the Martinsville nightmare, he and his wife were going through a very tough divorce. He worked five hours away. And when he would come home, Instead of staying in the house, he stayed in this blue barn on his property. And it was set up with a bed, a fridge, a freezer, other amenities, stuff like that. He also kept sheep. The sheep he used for food. And after they were slaughtered, he left their bones, including their skulls, around his property. <laughs> but when discovered, this shady-as-fuck living quarters with the sheep skulls around it fit nicely into the narrative that yeah. was forming in Martinsville... Hence, the cult was deemed the Brotherhood of the Ram. Happy coincidence. Yeah. Well, I mean, all that makes sense. I mean, the guy having marital problems staying in there, mm -hmm. but leaving skulls after carcasses after you're eating them around the house, I don't know. That seems a bit odd. If you're like a sustenance farmer, what do you do with the, the bones, remains? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. But he was interviewed on the CBC one, and he was like, I had them for food, and I didn't bother to bury their bones or anything. Like, they weren't my pets. Left them in the living room. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my biggest question with that was, was it hard to find out who owned the building? Like, couldn't they track him yeah. down and say, what's up with the thing? That could have saved a lot of, a lot of hassle, yeah. Possibly. But I think once they found it, it's like, oh, my God, it's blue. Oh, my God, there's a weird bed. Yeah. What the hell's going on here? You know? Yeah. It fits so well that they just assumed that was the right. That's what it seemed like. But when the guy found out what was going on, he was like, what? <laughs> like, he was like, no, this is not a church. This is where I'm escaping from my wife right now. <laughs> anyway, that was a very long story about satanic panic. But a very good story. Thank you. I think after the 1990s, the satanic panic sort of died down and we panic about different things. Yeah. There's always an enemy to look at, whether it's the devil or... The government or... Yeah. yeah. 
So that is our episode about Saskatchewan. So what do we got? We got a Finnish guy who is going to build a boat and sail to Finland all the way from landlocked Saskatchewan. <laughs> and we got a daycare that people assume must be a satanic cult because a kid had a rash. So if you're to look up the Some Weird Podcast in a dictionary, those two stories, that's the definition, I think, of the Some Weird Podcast. <laughs> You do a much better job of telling the uh, happy-go-lucky fun stories. And I'm like, yeah. guess what's the worst thing that's ever happened? I'm going to tell you. Yeah, but we hope you uh, hope you enjoyed the stories. And I, I certainly did, for sure. If you did, let us know what you think. Or if you didn't, let, know, let us know what you think. We can be reached on Twitter at SomeWeirdPod. Our email address is SomeWeirdPodcast at gmail.com. And our website is SomeWeirdPodcast.com. If you're from Saskatchewan, and uh, we hope you did your province well. If you have any stories about your Saskatchewan or your home province or any general weird stories that you would like to let us know, just send us some feedback. We always enjoy getting it. Saskatchewan. Some weird, boy. Some weird. That's a kinder, gentler strumming. Yeah. Waspy? Is that the band Wasp? Is that what it stood for? Remember the band Wasp? Ooh, it's hotter, faster. Anyway.